0: Hey, hey, beer fans.
1: Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Khan. And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Mad Science in the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, now available at all your finest retailers. Please make sure you go buy a copy and give us a review. Or two or three or five. Yes, Chicago rules. Yeah. Between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and strange ideas. And I'm the guy who's known for questioning the conventional wisdom and coming up with a way to check it out. On today's episode, well, we're going to handle some of your feedback. We're going to head off into the pub life and do some, uh, well, a fair amount of news, actually, today. And then we're going to skip over to the library where we're going to finally reveal the results of Denny's over-60 uh, survey. You know, beer after 60. Does it change? Yeah. Does your attitude change? <laughs> Everything changes, man,
0: let me tell you
1: And then over in the brewery, we're going to talk a little bit about apple harvesting And uh, Denny's recollections of Brewing Man And particularly a barley strain I'd never heard of before that surprised everybody And then in the lounge, we're going to hear from Sarah Wines Who actually spoke at Brewing Man She's a graduate student at OSU And gave a talk on, well, breeding malted barley for flavor And then, of course, we'll do your questions, quick tip, and something other And get you on your way Man, we're doing, like, all over the map today, aren't we? amen brother (laughs) all right but
0: before we start doing all that kind of stuff please sit back and listen to these messages from our sponsors
1: this episode is brought to you by pico brew makers of the zymatic and pico brewing systems the brewing systems of the future are here now Discover how easy and rewarding it is to make great beer with Pico Brew. And by Craftmeister and BTF Iota When you absolutely, positively need to make every surface clean, bust out the cleaners with professional power and home brewer safety. Make better beer with better chemistry. Choose Craftmeister. And by the American Homebrewers Association,
0: organizers of Learn to Homebrew Day, a nationwide celebration of homebrewing held every year on the first Saturday of November. To find a brew site near you, or to host your own Learn to Homebrew Day gathering, visit homebrewersassociation.org.
1: And by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you'd like to help support us and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the HA link to join the American Homebrewers Association and receive a subscription to Zymergy Magazine. Part of the proceeds from those go to help support the podcast. Thanks for your support.
0: Thank you for sticking around. Remember, if you uh, do business with any of our sponsors, please let them know where you heard about them so that uh, they know that they should keep supporting this show. So uh, we're going to start off with announcements like we always do, and Drew's going to tell you about the new episode of The Brew Files.
1: Yeah, Don't forget that last week we would have released Episode 72 of The Brew Files. 72. And this one was a live interview done at the brand-new brewery Trademark Brewing Company in Long Beach, California. You'll be hearing from them on this podcast before too long. But we did a collaboration brew between us, White Labs, Country Malt, John Fearless Hops, and the Maltose Falcons, my mighty, mighty homebrew club, and to make a, a sort of international local IPA that was originally supposed to be sort of West Coast clear and ended up being hazy for some reason. I don't know. It just happened. <laughs> but it still turned out delicious. It's amazing how that
0: happens, isn't it?
1: Yeah. So I had great fun doing that and, of course, uh, great fun playing around with uh, Sterling's mash filter, which is fantastic. Cool. Yeah, that'll be interesting to hear about that.
0: And we want to let you know about an event that we have coming up. Uh, We finally got Drew back out on the road again, and we are heading for Seattle. We're going to be there on October 26th for two events uh, set up by our good buddy Tony Oshner at uh, Micro Homebrew. We're going to be at Micro from 10 in the morning until 3 in the afternoon. It's a brew day. If you're in the area, bring your equipment over and brew. And we're going to be brewing a batch in conjunction with our dear, dear friend, Annie Johnson. Uh we got to figure out what to make. Huh? You know, I actually came up with an idea that combines all three of our loves. you ready for this? Okay. It is... Pilpazan, uh, what about huh? Pilpazan, a pilsner, American pale ale, and saison
1: cross. Oh, good. I thought you were gonna say a fried chicken saison something.
0: <laughs> no, man, because like Annie's into pilsners, right? I'm into pale ales, and you're into saisons. So how about if we were to do something that had like a pilsner grist, uh, APA hops, and saison yeast? There we go.
1: I think that would work. Pilpazan. There uh, you go. Pilp- so The new style coming soon to you and everybody else. That's right. So we'll be at Micro Homebrew in Kenmore,
0: Washington from 10 a.m. until 3 p.m. brewing our Pilpizan. Then we're going to take a couple hours off and head over to Karen Brewing in the evening from 5 until 6.30 p.m. where we're going to be kind of doing like a Q&A, just talk to people, have some beers, so please, I hope you can make it to one event or the other. Uh, we'll be doing book signings. Uh, come down, buy a couple dozen books. It's Christmas coming up. You know, you can use them for gifts. Everybody loves them. If not gifts, it's getting cold. They're great for starting fires.
1: And don't forget to bring me a fresh Sharpie.
0: <laughs> yeah. So anyway, that is October 26th, uh, Micro Homebrew in Kenmore from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. and Karen Brewing, C A. I-R-N, from 5 to
1: 6.30
0: p.m. Hope to see you there.
1: And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. Click the AHA, BruceWag.com, code word experimental. Amazon, Brewer's Friends, or BYO links on the website. And by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is... It's Chat with Champs, which is a great
0: organization that helps kids going through cancer treatments by connecting them with champions. So they've always got somebody to talk to, somebody to, like, give them some positive reinforcement, a friend to talk to. So please throw us a couple bucks, and we will throw it over to Chat with Champs.
1: There we go. And now it's time for your feedback. feedback. Now I got two pieces of feedback this week. First one comes from Andrew Graham from New Zealand, a production note. And I wanted to address this one uh, to everybody says, I have noticed that in recent podcasts, Drew's voice is at a much lower level than the rest of the recording. This makes it hard to find a comfortable listening level. Hopefully this is something that is easily fixed. I really enjoy the podcast and hope you can keep it going for many years to come. Well, we really enjoy making the podcast, but this is also what happens when you have an idiot audio engineer as your main editor on the second show. So, yeah, um, I'm still trying to struggle with some of the normalization between some of the levels. Uh, working on it. Then he's got to teach me more.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. I'm trying to get Drew to come up and visit me for a production workshop. So uh, we'll see what happens.
1: And it also doesn't help that sometimes I'm recording like early in the morning.
0: yeah right try not to wake anybody up huh
1: yeah exactly and then our next piece of feedback comes from jason nelms remember in the last episode we talked about how they were growing some triticale down in australia as sort of a drought resistant brewing grain Uh, jason actually pointed out that he says i was listening to your podcast on my way to work this morning and heard you mention triticale i wanted to point you guys in the direction of the north carolina craft malster epiphany they're sold by your sponsor atlantic brew supply and have a triticale malt And, yes, uh, Atlantic Brew Sprite, don't forget, uh, sponsors the Brew Files. Great uh, little shop. Go and support them. And you can save money, too. And he also came back a little bit later and says, oh, it also looks like they sell a 500 Love Bond chocolate triticale, so for all your roasted barley needs. And on a side note, malted corn, just in case you wanted to make, well, you know, a Kentucky Common or maybe a whiskey or something else. I wouldn't mind getting a hold of some malted corn to play with, man. That sounds kind of cool. Yeah, it kind of makes me tempted to go malted corn into a cream ale, (laughs) because I'm me. Yeah, well, you know what? I think that'd be worth a shot. I agree. All right, that's our two pieces of feedback. Don't forget, you can always give us feedback by emailing us at podcast.experimentalbrew.com. We gladly take all comers and all opinions. Okay, well, I guess it's time to get out of here and head over to the pub for a beer, huh? Yes,
0: sir. Yes. And a snack. And a snack, too. Wow. I'll tell you, we're going all out today. Stick around. We're going to be right back, coming to you from the Experimental Brewing Pub. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your word in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops is a 100% grower owned global hop supplier. Located in the Pacific Northwest, with a mission to connect family hop farms to the world's finest brewers. Yakima Chief's Cryo Hops represent the most innovative technology in hop processing. Using a patent-pending cryogenic separation process, which preserves the components of each hop fraction. Cryo Hops pellets provide intense hop flavor and aroma, reduced vegetal flavors, and increased yield. Available now to commercial and home brewers. Learn more at yakimachief.com com sitting here in the pub at the corner of everywhere and nowhere in your town, wherever in the world you happen to be. We're having a couple beers, and I guess Drew's having a snack. So fill us in, bud. All
1: right, so this past weekend, I was at Transplant Brewing Company up in Palmdale slash Lancaster, California, a.k.a. the Antelope Valley. And they had on tap their Bullfeathers IPA. And if you ever look at transplants, they have this outrageous artwork and this really great sort of inventive style. You've heard them on the podcast before. They are a very experimental flavor or collaboration type brewery. And so they had an IPA on tap called Catbird for a while. And Catbird was essentially an American IPA mixed with CBD oil. And they got this really concentrated CBD stuff from uh, Denver, mason jars full of it apparently, really high potency stuff. Well, California had signed a new law that said basically on January 1st, you were no longer allowed to mix CBD into any sort of alcoholic beverage. So there's all sorts of new regulations that are coming up because of all the marijuana and uh, other sorts of legalization. And so right now here in California, at least until people can sort of sort things out, the state has basically said, thou shalt not mix CBD into any alcoholic beverage. Nor shall you provide CBD so that somebody can mix it into their own beverage, right? So no sidecars of CBD to mix. And so that meant that transplants could no longer make their CBD-infused beer. And so they, they were kind of left with a bunch of it. So they transformed the catbird into bull feathers. And then they had a local donut maker come out to the brewery the other week. And they gave them CBD oil to mix into the frosting for their donuts. And so they were offering donuts with cbd infusion in them and i had a half a donut and a pint of that Bullfeathers ipa just before lunch and man i was feeling very mellow (laughs) it was kind of nice well the cbd isn't supposed to get you high is it well that's the thing is i mean they've had theirs tested to see if there's any thc content and they say it's not Uh, but a lot of cbd stuff out there has been tested to show and it does have thc in it Uh, so they're claiming no thc in their cbd extract but it you know, still, it was a very nice, mellow impact. <laughs> I felt very calm. Yeah, well,
0: I'll, th- I'll take your word for it, man. Uh, I'll just take my donuts chocolate. Thank you. That makes me mellow. And what are you having, sir? I am uh, like going for an old favorite standby again. I know you're out there seeking out the new flavors, and I'm kind of going through a period where I'm revisiting a lot of my old favorites. And we've had uh, an early fall and winter here in, uh, in Oregon. We kind of like skipped over fall after about a week or so of it and uh, headed right into cold and rainy weather. So uh, that uh, sent me out in search of some Imperial Stout because it's a great thing to uh, curl up next to the wood stove on a cold, rainy day and sip on an Imperial Stout. Went out looking for Victory's Old Horizontal, but to my dismay, it doesn't seem to be made anymore. Uh, It's not listed on their website, couldn't find any any place. Uh, I was really bummed, man. I used to love that beer. But I also really love North Coast Old Rasputin, uh, so I grabbed one of those. They don't really tell you much about the beer other than it's 9%, uh, 75 IBUs, and it's black in color. But, man, is that... A nice beer to just sit and sip. It's got a, a nice roastiness to it, but it's not like overly harsh. It's not tannic. Uh, it's really, really a nice balance of beer, and I don't think this will be the only one I have this winter.
1: Uh, I just remember years ago, I used to have debates with people about whether or not Old Rasputin was really an imperial stout or a Baltic porter because it was so smooth. And to my mind, I, I, I was always like, I don't care. It's just yummy.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, call it what you like, just go drink some.
1: Call it what you like,
0: just call it in my glass. That's right. And so we're going from a big beer to uh, talk about low and no alcohol beers. Uh, remember, we've uh, talked to an Athletic Brewing Company in the past and really, really enjoyed their nearly no alcohol beers. But it seems like uh, other breweries now are jumping on that bandwagon and including some big ones uh, like Heineken with Heineken Zero and ABI has just announced Budweiser Zero.
1: Yeah, well, at least in India. So now Heineken Zero has been around for a little while and listeners over in Europe uh, have told us that, you know, over in Europe, there's a thriving non-alcoholic market. You know, so you you always have sort of a non-alcoholic option that's better than, say, the old O'Douls and Sharps. And so Heineken Zero is one of the first ones that made it back over here in this recent surge. And a lot of people have been really enjoying it. But what we noticed is Bud Zero got introduced, I think, just in India, like I said. But what I thought was really interesting and the reason why we're talking about it is that apparently this is part of ABI's sort of strategic plan. What they have is a what they're calling their Global Smart Drinking Goals. And part of that is looking to make low-slash-non-alcoholic beers... 20% of ABI's global volume by 2025. And that to me was really sort of Huh. Yeah man, that's the, interesting. Yeah, that's like nearly unbelievable. I know right. So this is this is interesting. I I I I have to admit I I was a little surprised to see that as part of their their platform out there. I mean, now obviously this is a corporate goal thing, which means that if you've ever worked for a corporation, you know that corporate goals are good for about six months, and then somebody goes, "Wait, never mind that. I have a new idea." Um, but still, interesting to see that they were doing that. And of course, this is also seen. I'm, I think at least it's we're seeing it. This kind of mirrored in the craft beer world, not with non-alcoholic stuff, except for outside of some companies like uh, Athletic. But what we're seeing more is on the craft side is. Taking that same health and active lifestyle sort of mantra, the same thing that the hard seltzers are leaning into, and pushing that into craft beer. So seeing things like Dogfish Head with their uh, Slightly Mighty IPA, which has been getting great reviews and only comes in at like 95 calories and is like 4% ABV. Or Harpoon, they have their uh, Rec League, uh, which is 120 calories and sort of a, a sessionable IPA type idea. And what it makes me wonder is we've talked for years about Session Beer, getting getting those lower alcohol beers out there so that you you can enjoy yourself and not get hammered. Is this actually the way that we get to Session Beer where we push the health benefit message, where we push that calorie count message, where we push the, hey, these are part of an active lifestyle as opposed to, hey, these are things that you can drink all day? So I'm really kind of curious to see if that's going to be a message change.
0: Yeah, you know, for me, one of the biggest draws to the athletic beers was that they're low calories. Uh, You know, I just, I I have cut back on my drinking to try and lose some weight. And if I can drink a beer that has nearly no alcohol and, you know, 30 to 60 calories, that is going to really be a great thing for me.
1: Yeah, so it's curious what do you guys think i know that when we talked about non-alcoholic beer in the past like athletic i had some people going yay the great idea and other people going i don't get the point and you always see that sort of that sort of dichotomy so what do you guys think is this going to be a thing i've seen some people argue that it won't be a thing in the craft beer world because craft beer people won't see the value in it they they have a, a sort of an equation of alcohol to dollars and so Will that kill it, or is this actually going to be a trend that we're going to keep seeing?
0: And are you guys interested in drinking low-to-no alcohol beer? Uh, let us know what you think. I'd, I'd really like to hear about this from you. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of people just obviously are just drinking the beer for the alcohol, but if you're not, this could be a, a real alternative
1: for you. And going uh, hyper-local and keeping alcohol actually in the equation, local brewery here for me in L.A., one of the old-school uh, <laughs> Old school, in a sense, in this modern uh, rebirth of uh, craft breweries, Smog City. So appropriate name for LA, right? Even though we're not as smoggy as we used to be. Right. But Smog City down is down there over in Torrance. They're one of the older ones here in LA, along with my good buddies at Eagle Rock, who you've also heard on the podcast. And so the Porters, who you have to admit, that is such a great name for uh, for brewer. Uh, so uh, Jonathan and his wife Lori, who is also a big member of the LA Brewers Guild. They've taken over an old uh, BOP slash nano space that had been operating in Torrance as well. It's called uh, Zymergy Brew Works. The, they went out of business and they actually sold off to Smog City, who's now opened it up as Tap Room Number Three. And Tap Room Number Four is already on its way in planning. And what I love about it is that they've they've located this new tap room four and a half miles away from their original tap room. <laughs> yeah, so welcome to L.A. Yeah, really. Um, you know, that four and a half miles can take you a while. But what I'm curious about, and I haven't seen any news on it, is whether or not they're going to keep up the small batch brewing uh, there. They still have the bop kettles in place. They, they didn't take them out. But they are selling off a whole bunch of the 60-liter Speedles that they had there uh, for making the beers at Zymergy. And so you can actually contact the brewery and see if you can't get yourself a deal on some used uh, Speedles, you know, 60-liters. Good size, a uh, good size for winter. So see if they're still available. But good luck to the porters and good luck to Smog City because I think they represent LA well. Cool, man. And speaking of uh, representing LA well, there's uh, Forbes has online. They did a brand new interview with Sierra Nevada celebrating 40 years of independent beer, and you know talking with the Grossmans or talking with Ken Grossman about you know, how it got started and everything else. And what I really love is uh, that right there in. The very first interview question he mentions the Baltos Falcons.
0: <laughs> yeah, you would love that.
1: Of course. Well it says here yeah, the interviewer asked him how'd you get started in beer, and Ken says, As a kid, my neighbor's son and I were best buddies. His father was a very accomplished home brewer, not to mention metallurgist, winemaker, and sake maker. He was quite progressive. He always had something boiling on the stove. He was in a homebrew club, the Maltos Falcons, and he had connections with big brewers that got him access to premium malts and hops. And so that's that's how he started to learn. He started to learn from a, a member of the club. So, and he started homebrewing apparently in 1969. So that's kind of insane. Yeah, it is, man. It's like way ahead of us. Absolutely, just barely ahead of you, but we'll we'll still take it. <laughs> 30, but, Thirty years, come on. Eh, well, hey, I, I figure you just had experience in your line, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But if you really want to kind of learn some of the the history of Sierra Nevada and see exactly how Ken has managed to build a business that has succeeded so well and stayed around so long, particularly in a landscape when he started where there were a relative handful of breweries, then go read this article. We'll include a link to it, but it's Forbes Sierra Nevada Brewing Company celebrates 40 years of independent beer.
0: That's excellent, man. So speaking of excellent beer, at least from my point of view, we're going to be talking now about Stone Brewing, who uh, kind of got... Their wrist slapped a little bit for uh,
1: their name, arrogant bastard, which I have to admit. Well, it wasn't even a wrist slap. It was more like it was more like somebody went tisk 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 at them. And I mean, there's no legal ramifications to it. No, him.
0: no, not none at all. And I have to admit that uh, the objection to the name arrogant bastard uh, shows no sense of humor whatsoever. I, to me, it was like that was what drew me to try that beer. I still remember the first time uh, I drank one with uh, with my wife and a couple other friends at a party. Uh, I, we were standing there reading the label. It says, you probably won't like this beer. You're not sophisticated enough. And, and I love that. But apparently somebody took issue, huh?
1: Yeah, so over in the U.K., there's a group called the Portman Group. And it's sort of a weird thing. It's kind of like the MPAA here in the United States. You know, the MPAA oversees movie ratings. That's where you get your R ratings, your PGs, and all that. Uh, and the whole idea is it's a, an industry group. That's designed to sit there and encourage good behavior in the industry, so they avoid the government coming in and doing anything. So, that, I mean, that's the whole reason the MPA exists is because they wanted to get, wanted to keep the government out of censoring movies. Um, and in this particular case, it's run by a number of bigger breweries and spirits corporations, so like Carlsberg, Diageo, which owns Guinness, uh, Bacardi, AB InBev, you know, all these big guys, and they're kind of self-policing image and all this. And so they sent Stones UK distributor sort of a nasty gram saying that you know oh arrogant bastard you know has this terrible connotation it's pushing terrible things we we did this random survey to find out you know who what and where um and it's really kind of just this sort of like hey, rolling your eyes type of thing now of course the whole thing with arrogant bastard has always been precisely to generate that sort of response right yeah you know, that's the reason why people love it. Yeah, or that's the reason why it caught people's attention. And so Greg from Stone, being Greg from Stone and being the original arrogant bastard, literally, uh, wrote this multi-thousand word response to this two page letter, uh, sort of tearing it apart and taking it down and also really proving that the man likes to write a lot.
0: Yeah. And
1: really got kind of to push that image.
0: Yeah, you know, and I have to admit that uh, as much as I wasn't a fan of the original uh, warning or statement or reprimand or whatever to Stone, uh, I was not also a fan of Greg's response because, I mean, let's, yeah, he may be an arrogant bastard, but there are times that that works and times it doesn't.
1: Well, and... Also, but in fairness, I would say that as much as that is part of Greg's image and everything else, I mean, all of this is on brand for him. You either you either like it, you don't like it, or you just kind of roll your eyes at it. Yep, that's right. And at the same time, I, I I just remember like in the earlier days when Stone was building the brand new brewery that they're in still, uh, in Escondido, you know that big beautiful garden and everything else. He was out there driving the forklifts, placing boulders, and when I went to a festival that he had there one time. I pointed out, hey, Greg, somebody puked by your your gift shop. And instead of getting on the horn and getting some other employee over there to clean it up, he went over directly to clean it up himself.
0: Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, I I know. There's uh, no doubt of his commitment and his desire to to make it happen. Uh, And, you know, my reaction is simply my reaction.
1: Absolutely. So it's kind of funny. We'll include a link to it. It is... It is turgid, it is purple, it is in parts hilarious and smug and overbearing and eye-rolling and funny. Turgid and purple. Boy, I'll tell you,
0: the images that conjures up.
1: (laughs) Yes, well, there we go. And
0: I won't go there.
1: So there you go. If you guys have any responses about any of this stuff, if you have any thoughts, uh, or if you have other stories that you think we ought to talk about here, don't forget, email us podcast at experimentalbrew.com. That's right. So uh, now
0: it's time to head over to the library and talk about how your attitudes and uh, influences change about beer once you get over 60. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Are you having trouble finding enough time to homebrew and give attention to the other important things in your life? Is your newest brewed IPA experiment coming at the expense of other obligations? Don't neglect partner or pet. Brew with the Genesis Fermenter. Learn why at genesisfermenter.com and find them wherever Brewcraft USA products are sold. Wais' private collection release of global loggers covers the gamut of styles being brewed and celebrated around the world this time of year. 2575 Kolsch II from Germany produces a rich flavor profile and is suitable for a range of fermentation conditions. For international and American lager styles, 2272 North American Lager provides mild maltiness and a medium ester profile. And direct from the Austrian Alps, 2487 Hellebach Lager will create a rich, full-bodied, and complex malty profile sought after in many German lager styles. These Y-East Originals are available now through the end of December at your local homebrew shop. Find out more at yeastlab.com.
1: you guys know that one of my favorite places in the world is the library. I'm the grandson of a librarian, the son of an English teacher. I like books. (laughs) And here, I feel comfortable and safe and warm. And now, we're going to talk about comfortable and safe topics. Denny? Yeah. You're an old man. (laughs) I'm afraid so. You have opinions about beer? Uh, Yes, I
0: do. I, I don't know if anybody
1: ever realized that. And you think that other people over the age of 60 have opinions about beer.
0: Yeah, uh, this whole thing started out uh, because I've been brewing for, oh, 21 years now, something like that. Uh, I started in my mid-40s, and I'm now in my extremely late 60s. And I have noticed that for me... The beers that I brew, the beers that I order when I go out, uh, the beers that I drink, and the amount of beer that I drink has really changed over the last 20 years. And I was wondering if that was just me or if uh, if other people who were older felt like that too. So we put out a survey. We got 41 responses to it asking people who were over 60 to uh, respond and tell us how their attitudes and participation and intake of beer had changed as they got older. So, we're going to kind of run that by you because some of you out there are already over 60. And if you're not over 60, I assume that you're hoping to be. So, so some of this may influence you too. And, uh, you know, get drew off the uh, grumpy old man track.
1: So talk to me in 15 years.
0: Yeah, right. Exactly. So, uh, you know, the first thing we asked was how old are people? And we found that, uh, you know, uh, it, probably in the respondents to this, we had 15% that were 62, 15% that were 67, uh, some that were in their 70s even, but most of them fell like in the in the 60 to 70 area, the, the responses yeah, that well, we got.
1: Shockingly, the average came out to 65.4.
0: Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, you know, so that's actually just a touch younger than uh, than I am. Uh Seven and a half percent of the respondents were female. Uh I think that that's probably a little bit less than the number of female homebrewers out there. But, you know, I guess that they aren't all listening to the podcast. So we asked them, how long have you been drinking beer? And the biggest slice of the pie was in the 40 to 50 years area. And that's like. You know, I was I was astounded by that until I realized, oh yeah, I fall in there too. Uh one thing about getting old is you don't really think of yourself as old, you know? So we had uh, 57.5% in the 40 to 50 area and uh, about 30% in the 50-plus area. Drinking beer for 50 years, man.
1: Well, I was going to say, some of those people were obviously uh, not of legal age when they first started drinking.
0: Yeah, well, and that's true. And I know a lot of the people that I grew up with uh, back in Iowa started drinking way before the legal age. Uh, I was doing other things, so I didn't actually start drinking until I was 21. So, you know, there you go. Uh, How many years have you been drinking craft beer? This is what I wanted to see is like compared to how long you've been drinking overall, how long have you been drinking craft beer? So it looks like uh, a majority of the respondents, uh, about 72 percent of them, have been drinking in the 20 to 40 year area of craft beer. And, man, that's that's about as long as craft beer has really been making an inroad, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you think about Sierra Nevada, I mean, was 1982, and we just talked about in the previous segment. Right. 40 years of experience. Right,
0: right. You know? Yep. So we asked, how long have you been brewing? And uh, a majority of the people here are 35%. Well, it's not a majority. 35% of the people, the largest slice of the pie, came in at 20 to 30 years, which is right where I am, Uh have been brewing 1 to 10 years, and uh, 22.5% have been brewing for uh, 10 to 20 years. So a majority of our respondents uh, have been brewing for 20 to 30 years, which uh, seems to be pretty much average, huh?
1: Yep, indeed. So almost as long as they've been uh, really enjoying the beer. Yep. So, we asked, what is
0: your favorite style of beer to drink? And as you can imagine, because we didn't really uh, nail it down and give them set choices, there was a wide, wide range here, and a lot of things came in with one or two responses. So, we had, uh, you know, a pretty good representation here IPA, Saison, uh, and uh, Pale Ales were the big ones, but uh, again, there was a lot of variation in what people like to drink. Uh, then I wanted to see, in terms of how tastes have changed over the years, uh, what kind of beer people liked when they first began drinking 30 or 40 or 50 years ago. And as you might expect, there was a lot of, uh, of North American industrial lager in there uh, all over the place, uh, all different brands, Stroh's, Olympia, Miller, High Life, all that kind of stuff. Uh, there were some things like uh, Guinness and, uh, you know, things like that. But in general, most people went with like an American or at least continental macro lager when they started drinking. The, The other thing that I have found very interesting is how my perceptions of beer have changed over the years, and this is one reason that I seldom judge anymore. i found that on any given day, I can't count on my sense of taste or smell really being as strong or accurate as they used to be. So we asked people how their, uh, their tastes had changed over the years, uh, and their perceptions. People are saying, I, I prefer less intense beers, uh, I'm, becoming more discriminating in what I drink, looking for malty beers rather than the ones that are highly hopped. One person said their tastes have changed 360 degrees. Uh, the palate has become acclimated to many things I would not have consumed when I was younger, smoke, acidity, stuff like that. In this case, I wonder if it's because maybe their palate has become... Less acute, you know uh, maybe maybe you develop a taste for more highly hopped beers, uh, beers that are more sour than you used to because you don't taste as well as you used to. Uh, you think that has any validity to it?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, we already know that at a younger age to even my age, your palate shifts a lot to you know go from sweet to bitter. So the fact that there would be additional shifts as you're getting older makes perfect sense.
0: Yeah, man. And it's like I, I just I, – I see that this went both ways, though. Uh, some people liked less intense beers, and some people liked more
1: intense beers as they got older. So I don't know. Well, I think there are some – I mean I, I, you see this even in food where some people, as they get older, they like more bland, more comforting, more familiar uh, flavors. right. You know things, you know things that are softer and not as stressful, right? Yeah. Um Well. And then, but you'll you'll see other people who their their sense of taste, their sense of aroma dies off, so they take the opposite tack and they just start hammering and hammering what taste buds and and olfactory glands they have left with as much as they can.
0: Yeah, you know what? And I have found that my my tastes have broadened, not just in beer but in food also. I now Enjoy trying things that I would not have tried thirty or forty years ago uh, and i don 't know if that 's experience or an actual physical change. so we also ask people about how your drinking has evolved in terms of quantity um, and here we got fifty seven over fifty seven percent of respondents saying that the quantity they drink has stayed the same and what was interesting was the same amount, seventeen and a half percent, said that they drink less beer and that they drink more beer. <laughs> I thought I thought that was darn interesting and definitely not what I would have expected based on my own drinking habits. I definitely drink a lot less now than I used to. Uh but, you know, not always, but generally so Uh, We also asked, how has the alcohol level uh, changed as you've gotten older? And we found that 37.5% said that they tend to go for a lower alcohol level. 17.5% went for an increased alcohol level. But the most was
1: 47.5% who said no change at all. It stayed the same. I guess some people are constant. I'd be curious, you know, something to dig out of the data is – for the people who responded that they increased their alcohol level, I wonder if they've switched to stronger beers or if, or if it's a quantity increase, yeah, well, as you you know the other
0: question was that uh, about quantity, pretty much most of them said it had
1: stayed the same, so well I, I know but what I'm curious is for the people who say that's increased, you know it's like you know I, I wonder if there if there's some sort of correlation there where like hey, I increased my quantity, lowered my alcohol. Where I decrease my quantity and increase the alcohol, so the the whole idea of like I want to have more pints over the course of the day, or I just want to have a nice nightcap.
0: Yeah, right, right. Uh, the way that this looks to me is that uh, it the the alcohol quantity doesn't figure in as, or the alcohol level doesn't figure in as much as the overall quantity of beer. But you know, there's there's more uh, analysis that needs to be done here. Uh, in line with the uh, my observation about my uh, my taste buds kind of fading in and out we also asked uh how has your drinking evolved as you've gotten older in terms of bitterness uh 28% said reduced bitterness the largest number here, said increased bitterness, and 25% said that it stayed the same. So here we see that people are saying that the bitterness level of the beers that they drink is higher than it used to be. And again, you know, it's hard to say exactly why. Could it be because there are so many IPAs around when they used to be drinking all these macro industrial lagers that naturally the bitterness level has increased? Or does it have something again to do with that physical change, where maybe you're just not as sensitive to your to the bitterness? You know.
1: Mm-hmm. Dude, uh, has everybody undergone a lupulin threshold shift?
0: Yeah. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's kind of like. uh Flip a coin, because it's really hard to say what you, which one of those it is. It's almost like human beings are confounding. Can you imagine that? So uh, a couple other things that I thought were interesting. Uh, How is your drinking involved? Uh, you know, I prefer good taste over high alcohol. I know that for me, I used to be into good taste with high alcohol. Uh, I remember my wife one time pointing out that nothing I had on tap was under 8%. Uh, the, uh, we asked, do you feel, think that any beer is good beer? Uh, back from the old days, you know, when you, if you remember drinking in high school, it's like if it had alcohol, it was a good beer. Uh, these people say that, uh, no, they don't necessarily feel that any good beer is a good beer. And a majority of them said that they didn't ever feel that way. Uh, again, I keep saying majority. It's not really. Uh, 45% said that they didn't ever feel that any beer was a good beer. But on the other hand, 35% of them did say yes. So we asked, We got into the brewing part then and asked about if your brewing has changed over the years in terms of the amount that you brew. Uh, 40% said the same. 32.5% said less volume. 27.5% said more volume, which kind of surprised me. Uh do you and then kind of like going along with that, do you brew more or less frequently as you've gotten older? Uh thirty seven and a half percent said less frequently, thirty-two and a half percent said more frequently, thirty percent said the same. So that's you know, not not a huge change there. Uh do you formulate recipes differently during due to sensory shifts? Uh forty-seven and a half percent said no, uh thirty-five percent said yes. Have you had to alter your brewing practices or equipment to accommodate increased physical limitations as you aged? This was like one of the biggest ones. 77.5% said yes. And uh, I know that uh, that was my situation also. A lot of people said I had to reduce the size of my batches because my back was too messed up. I've added uh, pumps to my brewery to limit heavy lifting and I've gotten away from glass carboys two things that have happened to me. Lots of people actually said that they decreased their batch size. uh, And that makes perfect sense because smaller batch sizes means easier brewing. Uh, And then we asked them if there was anything else that they wanted to say. Uh, And the first response we got was something that I touched on a little while ago. I don't feel old. There are other people that say that, too. And, it's, you know, Drew has listened to me complain about my physical ailments long enough that I'm sure he finds this pretty amusing. But, mm-hmm. <laughs> but you know, seriously, I you guys are going to find when you get old, you may feel old physically, but mentally you don't think of yourself as old. And that's, that's one of the things that makes it difficult. Because you want to live like you always have and you think that you can, but your body is telling you no dude, uh you really can't have that fifth beer because your heart is gonna start going weird on you. Or no, you can't brew that fifteen gallon batch because you can't lift the stuff
1: to get it done. So uh well, I mean, look I, I still feel mentally like I'm about sixteen. It's just that, you know, like whenever I hurt myself, I now know, no, I'm not 16. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. You know, and I used to tell people I felt mentally like
0: I was 17 and I've, I've gone past that now. You know, I think maybe like I'm up into my mid twenties or something like that now.
1: Uh, well, now one thing I did want to uh, point out was I think it's interesting that we have, you know, with sort of this growing shift into some of the older ages for these smaller batches that we're also seeing the rise of equipment that actually helps you with these smaller batches, like, you know, for instance, our sponsor Pico, or even some of the other systems that are out there that are focused on doing these small batches, or even the systems that we talk about where you take an induction plate and you'd make a two-gallon brew in a bag. Yeah. So it's kind of curious to see that, that uh, coming up at the same time that we're seeing some of this aging concern and some of the size concern in the, in the brewing world.
0: Yeah, and, you know, I don't know how you could tell if there was a correlation between the two, but there definitely seems to be uh, something going on there, you know? Uh, and I, I think that, well, for instance, burn a bag, you can attribute as much to people living in different housing situations or having families mm-hmm. and being busy with their lives as you can to the physical limitations of being older. But I don't know that one or the other of those is necessarily the
1: only or main reason. Oh, no, I think it's a synergistic effect.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so too. So anyway, there's there's the info. Um it's not quite as clear-cut as I might have thought based on my own situation, but uh, I think that it gives all you younger guys and women uh something to kind of maybe draw some hope for that you know, if getting older won't totally kill your brewing hobby. And uh, if you're older like me and still brewing, you can kind of take heart that you're not the only one out there in that situation.
1: Yeah, it just turns out human beings are confounding, weird, and have different things going on. But in general, it does seem like as you get older, there's a tendency to try and reduce physical uh, exertion. Yeah. Makes sense. And also, I mean, I think in general, it's safe to say that there's a look-see towards Better quality, lower volume.
0: Yeah, I I think that that's kind of a, a takeaway is that, uh, you know, as, as you get older, uh, what you're really interested in is having a really good beer because you know that you may only have one or two that day instead of the six or eight that you used to have.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and, and it makes it easier to keep those nice bottles around, like you know, say your ale songs.
0: Yeah, that's right, man. That's why I uh, I look in the back of my beer fridge, and I still have seven years of North Coast old stock ale stashed away back in there. Hoarder. <laughs> yeah, enjoyer, enjoyer.
1: All right, I think it's time for us to go brew something.
0: I think so too. We're gonna head over to the brewery, and uh, we're gonna be talking about cider time and brewing, man. So please stick around. <music> This episode is brought to you by Brewers Publications, your source for essential brewing resources from experts. Today, there are more than 50 Brewers Publication titles in print and digital formats exploring beer styles, brewing science, and the business of beer.
1: Hey, welcome back, and thank you for listening to those messages from our sponsors. Remember, as we always tell you, if you're interacting with any of them, tell them that you heard about them here on Experimental Brewing so they know that they're spending their dosh well. Now, we are here. Things are burbling. There is stainless steel all around us. We've reduced the amount of glass in the brewery. That's right. But it's still a brewery, and it's time for us to talk, well, some barley and also an upcoming harvest.
0: As I mentioned, uh, winter is kind of setting in early here for us in the Pacific Northwest. And when the weather starts getting cold, that means it's time to harvest the apples and make some cider. And that's the plan for the next week or so. We have uh, what maybe like 10 or 12 apple trees here, five or six at least different varieties of apples. I don't even know what most of them are. But uh, every year, my dear wife goes out there and works her butt off picking lots and lots and lots of apples, and we break out our cider press and uh, make apple juice and ferment a bunch of it, and that's what's going on. Uh, We've had a couple frosts here recently. It's been real cold. And that is always a good thing for the apples when you're making cider. It uh, breaks down the cell walls, kind of helps them uh, exude more juice. And we always uh, sweat them for a while first by putting them uh, like just into buckets or boxes and let them sit around for a while uh, before we actually make cider out of them. So... Next week, uh, maybe next weekend, weekend after that, we will be breaking out the cider press, inviting some friends out, and doing the apple pressing. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. And that reminds me, I got to go get some 1450 so
1: I can make cider. I'm surprised you just don't have like a perpetual pipeline of that (laughs) stuff.
0: Well, you know what? Uh, I I have several packs in the fridge, but uh, they've been there quite a while since my brewing has uh, not been as active as I would like it to be. I'll have to go check the dates on them. But uh, I know it's kind of a joke, and I know that you guys have heard me talk about 1450 a lot, but kind of by accident, uh, I decided that uh, this has made me the best cider that I have made. Over the 20 years that I've been making cider, uh, so that's what I'm sticking with. Uh, I like it because it ferments dry, you, but it leaves behind a nice apple flavor. It's not so dry that you think you're drinking champagne or something like that. So, there, there's There's my tip. If you're going to be making cider this year, try some 1450 in it.
1: There you go. And don't forget, this is harvest time, so you should be able to call up your local orchards and see if they have any cider available. Uh, Of course, don't forget here in North America, we use that term very confusingly. So cider here means both fresh pressed juice that's unfiltered as well as the hard stuff, whereas in the rest of the world, cider means the hard stuff. But you can call up your local apple orchard and get them to set you aside something nice and interesting because every orchard out there has trees that they can't sell to the public for eating. So if you call ahead and say what you're going to do with it, Maybe you can get lucky, and you can actually get some really good, flavorful apples in your in your juice mix.
0: Yeah, right. And I'm I'm again lucky in that where I live out here in the country, many many of my neighbors have apple trees, and so uh, we kind of get together and trade apples, or get together and do a pressing together with a bunch of varieties. Uh, again, as far as I can tell, none of these are the official cider apples, but
1: boy, if you get a big enough blend, you can make some really good cider. Indeed, and from cider we got to go over to a weird malt that you'd never heard of and a Brewing Man recollection. Yeah. I uh, I spent last
0: weekend over in Madras, Oregon at Mecca Great Estate Malt. I got to judge one round of the Brewing Man Origin Beer Competition. Uh, I was a little bit late getting over there because it had started snowing in the mountain passes, and uh, I didn't make as good a time as I had thought. But I did do one flight. The Origin Beer Competition basically – uh, is for beers with a story, like Drew likes to brew, uh, in, involving local ingredients and uh, beers that have a, a background to them. And uh, there was there were some excellent excellent beers that I judged. I have to say that I didn't taste a single bad beer while I was over there. But one of the other things that I was there for was to try some beers made with some new barley varieties. If you heard our interview with Seth Klon from Mecca Grade a few episodes back, Seth was talking about how he'd been working with Oregon State University and their Malting Barley Program to kind of like come up with some new varieties of barley. And we got to taste four beers made with four different varieties. And one of them was one that I had never heard of before. It was called Violetta. Uh, It's uh, a two-row winter barley, specifically bred for growing in the Pacific Northwest and the Eastern Seaboard, selected for its malting quality, earliness, winter hardiness, and resistant to barley yellow mosaic virus, which sounds really terrible. Um, So what happened was that they had taken the full pint barley, which is a, a variety developed, I believe, at OSU, and it's what Seth uses for all his grains. And they had crossed the full pint with Violetta and Maris Otter, both. Now, they had done two different crosses with Violetta, one using Violetta as the pollen donor and one using Violetta as the base with the full pint as the pollen donor. Uh, And you would think that those beers would probably be a lot alike. And you would be very, very wrong about that. So, uh, you know, we're going to be hearing in the next segment from Sarah Wines, uh, of OSU, who has been working on this project. But before we do that, shall I reveal the results? I think you should. Okay. So again, there was a, the crosses were full pint Violetta. Then we had a straight full pint beer. We had a Maris Otter full pint cross, and again, this was with Maris Otter, in effect, being the father and full pint, or actually the mother, and full pint being the father, the pollen donor, and one with Violetta as the mother, and with uh, full pint being the pollen donor. The winner to Drew's chagrin was the Violetta full pint cross, the one where Violetta was the mother, and they used uh, pollen from full pint to pollinate it. It was an amazing beer. They made Pilsner's with all of these so that there was nothing to really get in the way. Uh, and that beer was crisp and bready and didn't have any kind of like strange flavors or aromas to it. So that's with the Violetta as the mother, full pint as the father. The number two was with Maris Otter as the mother and Fulpint as the father. Uh, that beer was a little bit more malt forward, uh, a little bit more flavor, not quite as crisp. In third place was the full pint Violetta cross with full pint as the mother and Violetta providing the pollen. And last place was the straight full pint, which is a barley that uh, I have been greatly enjoying, uh, when, uh, mecha grade malts it for their normal stuff. But compared to these other beers, it didn't taste as clean. Uh, when we were talking about it, making comments, I said, Well, this one has a whole lot more character to it and somebody looked at me and said, Yeah, that's putting it nicely. <laughs> So, you know, it was, it was really, really interesting. I had not really expected there to be a huge noticeable difference in these four beers. And let me tell you, there was one big takeaway from this is that the variety of barley that you use plays as big a role in your beer as the variety of hops or yeast that you use. Uh, these barleys were just Night and day different from one another. Um, you couldn't, well, of course, I didn't, okay, I didn't do a triangle test, so I can't, I can't swear that you can obviously tell the difference, but boy, I sure could pick out differences between all four of them. Uh, so basically what's going to happen now is that uh, these are going to go through sensory analysis at OSU, both with a trained panel and a uh, people off the street panel. And I think that they've got like 14 people for the trained panel and they're planning on 90 some or something that they're going to just pull in who are regular Pilsner drinkers and get their impressions. What will happen is that Seth will get to keep the winner of these taste tests as a proprietary variety that only he will grow. And the others will be released into the public domain so that anybody else can grow those varieties. So that's pretty cool. It means that uh, everybody's going to get a chance to try some beers made with new uh, barley malt varieties out there in the next year or two. I want to play. Yeah, I know, man. I was I was really sad that you could not have made that event to try these beers because uh, I know that you would have been as fascinated by it as I was.
1: Yeah. Well, that's the problem. Yeah. Too many events, too much work. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. You've got a life. I don't. There you go. Well, one of us is at least kind of retired. Yeah, right. Kind of retired. So now, do you have an idea of how long it will take before we'd actually see any of that?
0: I would say that it could be as soon as next year. You know, uh, I know that they're planning on doing the tastings at OSU in the next few months. Uh, and then, uh, you know, maybe by spring, Seth will be planting one of these new varieties uh, for commercial use. Uh, I, I I don't know. Uh, I guess I'll, we should get in touch with him and ask him about that. Uh, I don't know how long it's going to take to uh, grow enough to have seed for a full commercial crop. So we'll just have to see.
1: Dear Seth. I volunteer as a tester. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thank you.
0: You would. Well, you had your chance. What can I say?
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean an actual tester of making my own beers with it. So, yeah, I'll I'll be curious to see. I was uh, surprised because, you know, this is kind of – again, we talked about it with Seth. This is one of those places where a lot of people – a lot of brewers, at least, aren't really aware of the differences in the barley in the same way that they are, say, in their differences between the hops. Yeah,
0: right. And the other thing that I – Wanted to know more about on this was like okay so these were light killed and Pilsners were made for them. Would the results have been different if maybe the malts had been killed a little darker and a different style of beer made? Would there be a different variety preferred for those beers?
1: You know if if you right, and w-
0: if you were making an IPA say would the would the Maris Otter full pint cross work better than the Violetta full pint? It would be interesting. And would you get the peanut taste? (laughs) Yeah. We had a listener who wrote in and said that he can always detect Maris Otter because it tasted like peanuts to him. We were kind of speechless about that, huh?
1: Yep. Well, as he said, uh, boiled peanuts and uh, uh, piney was the other one. Yeah, you know, uh,
0: and I tried to taste that when we were were trying these, but I I just could not get peanuts or piney out of the Maris Otter cross, so – it is what it is. Yep. But anyway, it was a it was a great experience, and thanks Seth for inviting me over to do it. There were probably maybe like 30 to 40 people there for that tasting, so uh, we got a pretty good cross section. I uh, used an, a phone app called Draft Lab Pro to uh, record our impressions, so all that data is there and uh, will be used. Now I'm just
1: anxious to see where the uh, other taste panels come out. There you go. And now, of course, I think we need to go actually sit down and hear from Sarah talking about barley. Yeah. When we come back, we're going to be hearing a talk by Sarah Wines, a graduate
0: student at OSU, who is kind of like in charge of this project for uh, her thesis. And know, uh, we'll actually have some of the slides she showed available for you to look at. So you can check it all out. So stick around. We're going to be right back. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. It's just about time. It's just about time. Don't you think it's about time? We talked about beer. Okay, this is the part where everybody sings. Beer 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 beer. beer, 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 beer.
1: Beer, 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 beer. Welcome back, everybody. Thank you again. Once again, it's time for us to lounge. And we're actually going to... Do something I don't think we've ever done before, Denny. We're actually going to carry over from the brewery. <laughs> yeah, man. This is kind of different, huh? Yeah. And so this is a talk that, Denny, you recorded at Brewing Man. So I'm going to leave it to you to lay the groundwork, sir. Okay.
0: Well, you know, we uh, we talked about how I got to taste the beers made with the different malt uh, crosses. And the person who was kind of in charge of that whole project was a lady named Sarah Wines, who is a graduate student working on her master's degree at Oregon State University. And uh, so what we're going to do is listen to the talk that she gave uh, about uh, how this all worked, uh, how they developed the different varieties, how they malted and brewed with them, And we have some some photos, too, that uh, we'll make available to you in one format or another. So you can kind of follow along yourself with what she's talking about. Uh, It's about 20 minutes. It's pretty darn interesting. So uh, kick back, pay attention, and here is Sarah Wines.
2: My name is Sarah Wines. I am from Idaho originally, but I am currently in a graduate program working on my master's with Pat Hayes in the Barley program. I'm at Oregon State University and this is chapter three of my thesis so I'm pretty excited to work on this project and it's been a lot of fun so a little bit of background um, as we all know Mecca grade grows full pint quite well and that is the variety of barley that he is growing and he malts it exclusively as his particular barley variety for malt well Full Pint is a publicly owned variety, which means anyone who wants to can grow it. So he wanted to secure a special niche in the malting world. And so he approached Pat Hayes, which is my PI, and he asked, can you breed me a specific variety exclusively for me so that I can grow it and nobody else can? So thus was born the alternative model It was an industry-funded research agreement through the OSU Office of Commercialization and Corporate Development, which means that Mecca Grade owns all the resulting intellectual property from this project, which the resulting intellectual property is all of the varieties of barley that were developed. So we started out roughly about four years ago with about 130 double haploid, which is a uh, particular wordage for barley. Um, double haploid varieties of spring type, all of the, them had their at least one parent as full pint. So full pint was at least either the father or the mother for all of these progeny and it was 130 and over the last three seasons, three growing seasons, we have been selecting for mostly agronomic traits. So over the last three years, agronomic traits, grain specs, narrowing it down from 130 double haploids with the full parent as full pint as the parent down to a little bit more of a manageable selection so that Seth can point to one and say, that's the one that I want. So, so far we've gotten through the agronomic traits, grain physical properties, We have been working on this past year, the malting and the malting quality traits, brewing and beer quality traits, and we're going to be getting up onto the beer sensory assessments here in the next month or so. So we've narrowed it down to about three DH selections, and then we're going to be comparing them to full pint. So as you can see, full pint is at least one parent in all of them, and there's a pretty good indication that they could be some exciting variety coming through from one of these three and then once he picks that the one that he wants it's his exclusively nobody else can grow it so the 2018 the these are the grain specs for the 2018 harvest plumps looking good proteins looking good germs looking extremely reasonable nothing uh the top three are looking pretty good like a top three especially compared to full pint which is what he already does we want it to be as close to full pint as comfortable but we also don't want it to be exactly like full pint because we want it to be different enough to give a bit of a market marketability so this is what we did with the resulting, the four barley varieties that we're going to be looking at. So we started out trying to um, narrow down what we needed to do for malting. We used 500 gram samples of each of the four varieties. We put it in the CLP malter, which is a micro malter. And it's 500 gram batches at a time, narrowing it down, what temps are we looking at? What's um, What's the time for soaking what do we need to do like kind of narrow it down so that then we can actually move it to the mini malter which takes about 200 pounds at a time so once we narrowed it down in the clp we put 200 grams of each of the varieties into the mini malter and we malted them the exact same way as each other trying to make everything as equal as possible having the variety be the only thing that's different. We malted them back to back so we tried to have it be, be all within the same season so that the water temperatures and kind of the ambient temperatures were about the same and we malted all four of them with about within about a month and a little bit of change. So once we got all that dialed in and we got it all worked on for the malter we sent a little bit of sample into the hartwick center for food and beverage to get the analysis done professionally we got sent back all of the specs that brewers are interested in protein dry extract s over t dp all of those things which next oh wait uh, this is me <laughs> so this is full pint day uh, full pint uh, in the far picture just ready so it's after kiln you can if you see the picture in good detail you can kind of see the little rootlets and the agrospires and so what i'm doing is i'm pulling it out of the mini malter and these buckets are going to be sent in for cleaning all right next slide these are the malt specs so looking pretty good um there's a couple of things that are different so DH 120270 has a DP around here, and then its fan is a little low, but all in all, the specs look within reason. And when I brought it to the person that we're collaborating to brew with, he didn't seem to have a problem, and he said that the specs looked pretty good. So we went and started brewing. So we collaborated with the fermentation program, specifically Jeff Claussen and Tom Shellhammer, Dr. Tom Shellhammer from Oregon State University, their fermentation program, and we decided to do a one malt lager pilsner to try and bring forth as much of the malt quality as possible. So 42 kilograms of malt, We he used some of that, and then... About five minutes into the boil, he added the isohop isohop hop extract. Uh, About 50 minutes into boil, he added the kasbek hops. These were specifically picked for kind of a neutral bittering proponent so that they would add some bitterness and good quality to the beer to make it taste like a good beer instead of an experimental beer. But he didn't want the hops, aromas, or flavors to kind of mask what the specific barley flavors might be bringing. He also added a bohemian lager strain which is also picked for its neutral characteristic and we lagered it for about five to six weeks. Once again he did all these brews back to back within the same week and so tried to get it. The recipe was the same, they were all treated the same. Once again the only thing different was the variety of barley that was used. And there they are, sitting pretty in the cooler, getting some CO2. Uh, this was probably about this was about earlier this week. Still on some CO2. And they're ready to go. I mean, they're back there. They're going to be drunk and hopefully liked by you guys. And at that point, this is where the project stands. Next, we start to go into some sensory analysis. So this is the last and final step of the data that we're all going to hand over to Seth and the Mecca grade family so that they can pick their proprietary variety. So what we are doing is we're going to be collaborating with the Center for Sensory and Consumer Behavior Research at Oregon State University. They're going to get together a panel of about 100 to 150 consumers. Off the street people who sign up saying that they drink lagers, pilsners, two to three times a week maybe once to three times a week but they know what a good pilsner tastes like and so what we're going to do is we're going to bring them in give them these four beers and say do you like them what is your overall preference which one do you like more than the other we're also going to do a cata check all that apply so instead of asking the consumer who may or may not be able to pick individual characteristics out of a beer we're going to give them a set of characteristics that they may or may not find in that beer, and they can click which ones that they perceive as very obvious. So if they find something that has a particular graham cracker taste, there's graham cracker. All they have to do is click it. They don't have to really put a name to the taste. It's already there. It makes it a little bit easier. So that's going to be the consumer um, section. I've already done this test with a similar project dealing with different beers and different barley varieties. Um, but then this is going to be also what Seth's going to be Seths varieties are going to be treated to as well. So I'm going to be able to uh, have two projects of a similar quality that I'll be able to see what the results are. Also next, we're going to be doing a trained sensory panel like you would find in a brew house or a malt house to check specific qualities of the beer. We're going to be doing that in collaboration with the Food Science and Fermentation Project. It's going to be a train panel. Usually it's between 12 to 18 people. And we are probably going to be doing a projective mapping napping where we have a giant sheet of paper, it's all blinded, and we try and each individual taster can take that piece of paper and use it to however they want. And they can place the beers as close or as far away in whatever kind of design that they want. It's actually kind of nice sensory-wise and statistics-wise because depending upon how close some of the, they group their beers, that's how similar they taste. So the farther apart they are, the less similar that they taste and then they can describe the characteristics that they do taste in each of the beers it's kind of an interesting way to go about it, it sounds a little complicated but it actually works out statistically wise for as far as do they taste the same and why they do not so that's going to be the uh, another next step so i'm kind of in Halfway through this part of the project, uh, I just finished with the consumer sensory for another project, and so I kind of have an idea of how this is going to look. Um, contributions I will be publishing, hopefully, a scholarly art journal article in conjunction with my previous project since they are so similar. The only thing that's different is the barley and where it came from. So I'll be hopefully combining those two projects into one paper to see if. Yes, there is or there is not evidence that barley variety does or does not contribute to overall beer flavor. And it may be that, yes, it does, but it might not make a difference because we brewed a single malt, very specific style of beer, and the the differences were so subtle that it may not make a difference in the end. But that's another project. What I'm kind of looking for is... Is it, even, is it even there? So that's kind of the scholarly um, contributions that I will be looking into. Practical outcomes. I'll be able to give varietal recommendations. Um, we'll be able to give varietal recommendations to Seth. These are what the people found. These are what the train panel found. These are the characteristics for each of the varieties in comparison to full pint. I'll be able to do that based on the acronomics, the malting qualities, beer qualities, the sensory results. And then also what's coming up is a beer and barley metabolomics, which you take the volatile compounds found in alcoholic beverages or just anything, all smells are volatiles and you take those volatile compounds and you find out where they came from, the proteins that they came from, and those proteins can be traced back to the DNA strand that they came from. And so if you can trace a particular volatile compound, say honey, and you can find the protein that causes the honey smell, and you can find where that protein's from in the DNA, Maybe you can create your own barley specifically with a honey DNA characteristic, a graham cracker DNA characteristic. It's a possibility. We're looking into it. So my project is also fitting in with that. That's going on in Colorado, that specific lab happenings. And I'm gonna be able to touch on some of the results for that as well. See if there's at all possibility of a DNA component to this flavor thing. So that's where I'm at. And you'll be able to taste the beers. I think it's looking like it's getting out. So you're asking, is terroir a, a thing? Actually, that's going to be asked here in the next season. Uh, I've got a colleague working on that right now. A couple of people have looked in to see if barley and terroir are things. So, there's some research pointing that yes. As far as, like... Protein specifications, grain specifications, terroir makes a huge difference. But as far as beer flavors, I'm not sure if anybody's really looked into how beer flavor is affected by barley terroir. I know there's a couple of people who might be working on it, but it may not be published yet, as far as I know. Because I know that it's a, a, a pretty exciting project for my colleague because It's either super rare or it hasn't really been done to the extent that they're satisfied with. So one more slide, because I want to get to this one. Acknowledgements. Thank you so much for the Mecca Grade family for doing this project, approaching Pat for this. Thank you, Pat, for giving me the tail end of this project, in my opinion, the cool end of this project, because I get to watch and learn how beer is made and taste a little bit. Scott Fisk has been a help. He's been the one teaching me how to malt the entire OSU barley world, as well as Tom Shellhammer, Jeff Claussen, who are in the fermentation science department at OSU. They were the ones who brewed the beer, helped us pick out the recipe. And then Sue Kussar and Dr. Lim, they're the ones who are in the consumer sensory program and they're the ones who have been running the consumer sensory tests. And of course, to my partner, Brian, who's been getting me through this whole master's thing. So, all right. The parent that's listed first is the mom, and the parent that's listed next is the pollen donor. So, in essence, they're siblings. There's, and that's another thing that Pat's really interested in uh, is there are actually not like huge differences, but there are very much differences between using violetta as mom or violetta as dad they're the same cross it's just that i mean because mom contributes mitochondria maybe this is what mitochondria contribute to beer or to grain it's one of those things that could probably look in people could look into further it's uh i don't know if it's been super explored any other questions all right, let's drink some beer. Thank you. So for me, you know,
0: one of the, the biggest things I learned from that talk was that what happens when you cross barley varieties, and I assume it's true for other varieties of plants, is that there's a big difference when the mother and father are switched. Uh, for instance, like we were talking about earlier, One of these crosses had the Violetta, Violetta, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, as the mother and the uh, full pint as the uh, donor of the pollen. And the other one was reversed with the full pint as the mother and the Violetta as the uh, pollen donor. And those two beers were remarkably different just from that one little change in the barley.
1: Hmm. I'd be curious to see if you could detect the differences if you just chewed on the barley itself. Yeah, the, you'd assume you could, but
0: you know, I, I would have to assume you could, but I mean, who knows? And uh, you know, I, there wasn't any barley either raw or malt in there for us to try, but uh, that is an interesting question, and maybe I'll shoot Seth a message and see if maybe we can get some to chew on.
1: Yeah, that's always interesting. We always t- tell people like, you know, hey, look, if you if you're trying to get a sense of how malt's going to taste in a beer, chew it up, crunch it up, let it sit in your mouth for a minute. And you'll be able to actually detect the amylase in your mouth doing things to the starch. So, yeah, I'd I'd love to see what those two malts taste because this is an aspect of plant biology I guess I never really thought about. Yeah,
0: and and most people don't. And I think that that's one of the points that uh, Seth is trying to make with this whole thing is that barley can have a huge impact on your beer. I mean, you know, people... Say okay, I'm going to use like Maris Otter or, or Golden Promise or something, and obviously people can taste differences in that. But when it comes to pale malt, it just kind of gets referred to as two-row, and you know we all know that all barley is two-row, pretty much all all barley that we use is two-row. Uh, so it's time to start making some further distinctions there and
1: uh, paying attention to what the the malt is bringing to your beer. God help us! I think this is going to launch a giant cross-comparison of malt strains yeah well you know what man it's
0: been going on with hops for a long time uh it's about time that we did the same thing with malt
1: i agree so having gone from there i think it's time for us to answer some questions
0: i do too so we're going to take a quick break and when we come back we're going to be wrapping the show up with some Q and a quick tip and uh, something other both of those from drew this week stick around we're going to be right back Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. Thank you all for sticking around. It is time to get this show on and off the road. So we're going to start off with some questions. And the first one comes from Rich Potter. And uh, this is going to Drew because it's a saison question. So Rich says, ever since the first Brew Files, I've been thinking I should really try a saison, as I haven't tried one before. But I was wondering if you might be able to give a couple of pointers. <laughs> oh, boy, if anybody can give pointers about saison." There might be a whole show in that. That's right. I wanted to try the citrus saison recipe that you mentioned, but can't find anything concrete online. Is it just the springtime and Amarillo recipe with citra directly swapped in, presumably matching IBUs? Do you have any particular recommendations for yeast? I believe I heard you mention one of the omega strains before. Unfortunately, neither of my local homebrew shops have liquid yeast, but we can get it on mail order. Does this need a proper starter, or should a shaken, not stirred, vitality starter get me to where I need to be? I don't currently have any cooling capability. Will that cause me issues? I have one of the fast-ferment plastic conicals, so a water bath wouldn't really work. It's a fairly steady 64 degrees Fahrenheit in the room where my fermenter is, and I have a heat belt if necessary. Am I better waiting for the weather to cool down a little, or for when I finally build my long plan system with an SS brew bucket, cooling coil lid, and a Peltier system? Is there anything else special that you recommend? I'm sure I've heard you talking about open fermentations for some Saison use before, but that maybe the Omega one doesn't normally
1: need it all right so a couple of questions here from rich and first i'll put the citrus saison recipe online i'm actually kind of surprised it's not but you are correct it is close to the springtime in amarillo it is a riff on the recipe uh with a lot of citrus uh, uh put in there uh and i'll include a link and i'll put it up on the website as well so everybody can see it in terms of yeast strains i don't actually use the omega yeast strain on this this is one of the few times I'm actually very happy to use the Y-East 3711, the French saison strain, because I think when you have those big bright American hoppy characters, that's when 3711 really shines in my mind. I totally agree with that. Uh, the,
0: the phenolics in that yeast really complement the hops.
1: And then also those glycerols that are produced, they give a little extra body behind, you know, what's going to be a big bright hoppy character, even though the beer itself is very dry. So yeah, 3711 or an equivalent French saison strain. I'm still not entirely a huge fan of the Bell Saison, but that's me. Um, And, yes, you can do a shake-and-not-stirred starter with this. uh, That would be just fine.
0: And I just want to point out that if you do end up using a dry
1: yeast with it, don't do a starter. Right. And then cooling-wise, I think you'll be fine at uh, 64 degrees Fahrenheit or 18C. The yeast will do plenty of heat, and that yeast also... It does fine with higher heat. It doesn't need the higher heat. It doesn't it doesn't crave the higher heat in the same way that say the DuPont strains do. So eighteen C sixty four degrees Fahrenheit, you're fine. And then if you do use the one of the French Saison strains, actually you don't have to worry so much about open fermentation. I still like to do open fermentation because I prefer the characteristics there, but the thirty seven eleven, for instance, does just fine with closed fermentation. Cool. Ta-da.
0: Yep. There you go, man. I guess you did have some info about Saisons,
1: huh? Yeah, just a little. And then our next question comes from Eric Pierce. You've heard from Eric before. We've talked to Eric before. We love Eric. But Eric came in with another question. He said, most of the time, homebrewers get T90 pellets. And now there's the newfangled cryo hops. But there's also T45 hops. They're somewhere in between in terms of potency. How come T45 never made it to the homebrew market? Just curious. Well, Eric, uh, we did some research on this, and it kind of looks like
0: T45 isn't available to any market out there. Now, uh, having said that, I'm sure somebody will uh, write in and correct me and tell me they're still being made. But we looked around online. We couldn't find any reference to them. And even when they were in their heyday a few years ago, they were kind of hard to find. Uh, Basically, T45s, Got their name because they're like half a T90s because they have a lot of the vegetation removed, which is pretty much exactly what cryo hops are, except maybe even with more of the vegetation removed. So,
1: well, it also feels like the cryos are specifically cold processed in a way that the T45s aren't necessarily. So, I mean, it's a. uh, to me, the cryos feel like a, a refinement on the technique.
0: Yeah, well, definitely the cryos are definitely cold-processed uh, and kept away from oxygen all the time. But pretty much all of uh, Yakima Chief's pellet mills are nitrogen-cooled, so... You know, you're getting some, you're not eliminating the air, but at least you're keeping the heat down, which is a very, very important thing uh, when you're making hot pellets. Uh, And here's a little tip that I learned there several years ago. You can tell the quality of your hot pellets by looking at the outside of the pellets. If it's shiny, then that pellet was made in a press that wasn't cooled and it got extra heat on it as uh, as it was being processed and will not be as potent as one that will have a dull finish on the outside of the pellet. So there's something to look for.
1: Hmm. Interesting. So, in other words, T45s seem to mostly be a moribund product.
0: Yep. I don't think you're going to find them anywhere, Eric, and so somebody write in and tell me that I'm wrong.
1: I'll, I'll do that. I don't even know if you're wrong. I'll just <laughs> do it anyway.
0: Yeah, I know, man. You don't even need to write in. You can just text me. And the next question comes from Stephen Grant from up in Portland, close to me. Stephen says, I was curious about cold crashing and then bottle conditioning. Would I have to repitch yeast after cold crashing a beer, or would there still be enough yeast left in solution to carbonate two to three volumes of CO2 in bottles? I see this in brewing instructions from time to time and wouldn't have a problem doing it with my keg beers, but I like to bottle my Belgian-style beers. This could also relate to bottling wagers, and I just wanted to get both of your takes on the matter. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. And, uh, Drew, you go first.
1: No. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I say no. And just to give some background and context on this, I have done those silly champagne beers for a while go listen to the brew files episode about fruit beers and that whole time what i found was as long as i made sure that i pitched enough healthy yeast in the beginning even after going through the process of a long fermentation cycle on a high alcohol beer so those are 10 uh, typically like 10 to 12 percent alcohol and then going even further and then basically freezing the bottles the or just about freezing the bottles, dropping out a lot of yeast, putting it up into the neck of the bottle, and then shooting it out of the bottle, and then hitting it with a little bit of sugar solution, which all should seem to be absolutely insane because I was trying to aim for, th- you know, three and a half to five volumes of CO2. Should have been the ultimate pressure test for yeast and the ultimate use case for repitching. I still never repitched, and my beers all had bright, bubbly champagne bubbles.
0: Yeah, you know what? and All I can say is that uh, I've had similar experience. Uh, you know, I just have not found any reason whatsoever to repitch yeast after cold crashing. There's, if you look at that beer under a microscope, you're going to see a whole bunch of yeast there. So just don't sweat it, man.
1: Yep. Yeah, the yeast are yeast are hardy little buggers. So uh, you actually have to fight in order to get enough of them out that I don't think they are carbonation. Reliability-wise, maybe, but I, again, like I said, my brute beers, I never did anything in terms of repitching, and I did as much to drive as much yeast out of those things as I could, and I still got successful carbonation. Yep, yep, no problem whatsoever. Okay, and last question comes from Gabe Sassman, who asks, uh, First, I would like to say I love the show. Thank you. I believe the only way it could be any better is if there was more ukulele. Yay! Yay! Two weeks ago, I brewed an IPA. After kegging, I sampled my beer as one would do, and I discovered a metallic flavor. Now, I have a water softener, so normally the only thing in my water is salt or sodium chloride. After looking further, I found that my water softener was out of salt, so I was using water with a high iron content. So my question to you, do you know of anything that I can put in my finished beer to remove the iron? Or if I wait long enough, will it precipitate out? Thank you for any help you can give me. Denny.
0: Yeah, boy, this is, uh, this is a tough one. I, I put some thought into this and I really don't think that there's anything that you can do at this point. I don't know of any way to remove the iron. I kind of doubt it's going to precipitate out, but for me, that is like unknown territory. Uh, if you'd been aware of it before you brewed, some Brutan B might have helped because it kind of like, helps to to draw the iron out. Uh, That's not a great uh, explanation, but it's good enough. Um, But I think, man, in this case, you are probably out of luck, but you might as well keep the beer around because hopefully I'll be wrong.
1: Yeah, although I will say in my own experience, not with any iron in my own water, thankfully. But there was a beer that I had in Belgium years ago. Uh, it was called uh, Cine. And Cine, I think, is uh, part of a uh, De Marchbury Yeah, I'll look it up later. But uh, Cine is C-I-N-E-Y. And either from their water source or from the fact that they were using mild steel tanks, which were still actually an old thing in Belgium at the time when wow. I was there. Yep. Yeah, um, the beers had a very high iron contents, to the point where the beer itself tasted bloody. Not metallic, but bloody. And... I had that beer that had been aged for five years, and it still tasted like that iron bloody content thing. So I don't think iron is going to successfully precipitate out, at least not if you have a high amount of it.
0: You know, and that's an interesting point here because uh, he said he sampled his beer and it had a metallic flavor. And, of course, that could be iron, but that can also come from oxidation too. So
1: just a thought – and it can come from unpassivated stainless steel and a couple of other things in the, in the mix. Uh, there are other ways to get it, but if he, it, I'm assuming he's saying that since the salt was out of his water softener and he knows his water has a high iron content, that's why he's associating. But yeah, we'll, we'll have to see. Gabe, let us know if, if any changes happen to your beer. Uh, I'm afraid, I think if it's iron, I don't think it's going to come out. For any of our listeners out there who have had any experience with dealing with iron in your beer, if you know of a way to get it out, let us know.
0: Hey, you know what, man? You mentioned something there that makes me want to go off on a tangent, because this is something that I have been thinking about and hearing from other people. Yeah, I know. I know what happens when I think. But you mentioned passivating stainless steel. I've never done that. I didn't even
1: realize that it was necessary to passivate stainless steel. It, it's only necessary if you're stripping it and then immediately trying to use it.
0: Okay, great. You know, for the I, most
1: part, if you're, for the most part, as home brewers, you know the fact that like we let it sit for like a week or two, is passivating naturally.
0: Yeah, right. And I can remember there was one time I did it when I had a, a keg converted into a kettle, the top cut out, and it started rusting, so I needed to passivate, you know, just the edge of that cut. But this has come up uh, in conversations with home brewers in relation to. Uh, like the stainless steel conical fermenters that uh, are getting so popular these days and everything. And, you know, we both use a couple of those, and I've done nothing to passivate them whatsoever, and I can't detect any problems because of that. So, uh hmm. So, uh, do you think that maybe people are going the overkill route when they're passivating brand new stainless steel fermenters and stuff like that?
1: Well, I mean, I think it's probably still a good idea when you get brand-new stainless steel to give it some heavy-duty cleaning. And, you know, you can use an acetone as a heavy-duty cleaning anyway because you may have machining oil or something else left in the mix. So it makes sense just to go and clean the living hell out of something brand-new that you have in your brewery. You know, so it, it, I think-
0: it does, but that never occurred to me, and I used both of those uh, grandfather fermenters without cleaning or uh, passivating them, and maybe I
1: got lucky, huh? Well, I was going to say, you also lived in the times of ditch weed and other questionable street drugs. Yeah. And survived.
0: I'm also the guy who doesn't sanitize aluminum foil when it comes off the roll, which I know makes – Well, that's
1: just because you're crazy.
0: Well, I don't think that there's any uh, any argument with that.
1: Yep. So there you go. If you guys know of a reason that uh, people should be passivating other than, say, a hard cleaning that may strip off any sort of protective layers, let us know. Yeah, really, really. We have our own questions here in the Q&A today. Yep. All right. So I think it's time for us to get uh, get the show finally on the road, and I'm going to close us out with two very quick things. And the first one is my quick tip for the week, which is, you guys remember I told you I was going to do a, another version of my coming in hot because uh, I was a little unsatisfied with how the first batch came out. Well, the second batch uh, had some of the same problems with uh, particularly the gravity. I fell 13 points short. Check your mill. My mill was miscalibrated.
0: <laughs> you know what? And if you think back a couple of years, I had the exact same tip after the exact
1: same situation. Yeah. So uh, double-check your mill. Make sure that your grist looks okay. And if it doesn't, don't hesitate to go remill it because otherwise you will have just spent a lot of time making a beer not as strong as you want it to be. And that's, a, that's so, a really good point. After you crush your grain, take a
0: look at the crush because if something has gone wrong, there's no reason you can't run it through again.
1: Right. Exactly. And particularly, I have a three-roller mill. So it's not going to necessarily shear the the husk, which is the big worry that you have. And even if it does, I'm still okay. So a three roller mill that must go to eleven, huh? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then for something other than uh, other than beer this week, I want to touch on something that's personal to me. And uh, Steve Limbrey uh, from Orlando actually brought this up. Uh, or actually brought it to my attention. Uh, there is a I'm trying to think how best to describe it. Uh, a flying history museum uh, foundation out there called the Collins foundation. And they're famous for having sort of a vintage fleet of vintage Warcraft. And, you know, they have like, you know, B 25 bombers, B 24 bomber. And until recently they had a B 17 bomber that they called the nine Oh nine. And they just lost that craft as we're recording a couple of days ago. And unfortunately seven people died on the airplane. I got three different chances to go up in this plane when it was here in Burbank. And for me, it actually has a personal connection because the first few times I went up, went up with a good friend of mine, uh, Bill. And just after our second flight, Bill passed away. So after that, Bill's father and I raised some money. We put together a memorial plaque for Bill, and they actually attached it to the Bombay doors in the, in the bomber. And so Bill got to ride in the bomber multiple times after that, or at least his name. And then the next year when the bomber came back around, Bill's father and I uh, took a a flight together so that he could experience the same thing that his his son had. And uh, I have a whole page documented You can see these glorious photos of it. It was an incredible trip. Um, And what's not documented in there is also the fact that we took some of Bill's ashes up and scattered Bill over the Hollywood Hills, uh, the back of the plane, which he would have loved. Um, But like I said, unfortunately, They lost the 909 this past week, along with seven people and six other people seriously injured. So my thoughts go out to the Collins Foundation. That was one of 11 still flying B-17s. And now we're down to 10.
0: Man, I got to tell you, that is a really cool story.
1: Yeah, I mean, that was that was a hell of a set of experiences, you know, because you also realize that for one of these machines that's sitting there designed to carry. Hundreds and hundreds of pounds of bombs. It's not very big and sort of everything's run by cables. So the, the pilot who was from Long Beach, who uh, died in the crash, he, he talked about the fact that like sometimes you had to fight this beast because it was all mechanical linkage, all via cable. And as you're walking around this plane, you realize I could grab out and grab one of the control surface cables, you know, while I was going there. I could not imagine being in a fleet of these things trying to fly over somebody who's throwing anti aircraft fire at me. Oh, man. Wow. Wow. Yeah. What, what an experience. What a story. Uh, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Well, and make sure, you know, let's see what happens with the Collings Foundation. Uh, not a bad organization to donate some money to because they are out there doing the, you know, really good work at keeping some of these machines flying like a B-24, which I know they still have. Uh, that They call the Witchcraft. But really go and look. And I'll include a link to my story about this flight or the set of flights and about Bill. And you guys can at least see the 909 in all of its glory. Cool. Cool.
0: Okay, shall we uh, wrap it up and head on out? I think it's time. All right. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch all of our latest adventures and writings by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where we at Exp Brewing, We're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. Uh, Drew is on the Reddit uh, homebrewing group and the Slack homebrew channel. I hang out on a whole bunch of different beer forums, but you can usually find me on the AHA discussion forum. If you want to ask us a question or suggest topics, recipes, experiments or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at Experimental brew.com and he's drew at Experimentalbrew.com. and of course you can always leave us a voicemail or shoot us a text at six two six seven six five one ale that's six two six seven six five one two five three and be sure to leave your name and tell us where you're from so until next time remember to always brew experimentally or brew wacky And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.